Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and in Vancouver there is Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. In Vancouver there. Yeah, yeah. You are sounding much better than you were last week. Yeah, I'm about 75% better, so the initial stuff was really rough, and then I'm still coughing and stuffed up and all that kind of stuff, so and here it is 10 days later, so... Oh boy! Well, you you are on the mend. So, um, uh, as we approach Remembrance Day, I'm glad we don't have to just remember you, and you're getting better. Right? I feel good about that for sure. <laughs> the views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Patine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to Dark Poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. In the annals of military history, few figures stand out as singularly remarkable as does Leo Major, a French-Canadian soldier whose audacious feats in World War II and the Korean War etched his name into the pantheon of military legends. During World War II, he served with the Regiment de la Chaudière, participating in the D-Day landings and embarking on a series of extraordinary exploits that culminated in the single-handed liberation of the Dutch town of Zwolle from Nazi occupation. Unfazed by injuries and fueled by a relentless drive, he refused to be sidelined, resolutely continuing his service. Major Saga did not conclude with the end of World War II. He re-enlisted to serve in the Korean War, where he would once again defy the odds and solidify his legacy. 
His story is a captivating tale of bravery, resilience, and a steadfast commitment to justice, offering an inspiring testament to the power of individual courage in the face of overwhelming adversity. Some have called him Quebec's Rambo. He is the only Canadian to have received the Distinguished Conduct Medal, DCM, twice for his actions in two different wars. This is Dark Poutine Episode 292, Remembrance Day 2023, The One-Eyed Ghost. Leo Major. The real story of Leo Major's war record reads like the tales of the fictional heroes of the war comics I read as a youngster, Sergeant's Rock and Fury, for example. If Leo's story were not so well documented, it would be hard to believe such a person existed. But he did. Leo Major, considered one of Canada's greatest heroes, was born to French-Canadian parents in Bedford, Massachusetts on January 23, 1921, during what the local newspaper headlines declared the worst snowstorm of the century. His father was a worker for the Canadian National Railways, temporarily assigned to work on an exchange program with the American Railroad Company. The project was completed when Leo was a year old and his family moved back to the Montreal area, and this is where young Leo was raised. Have you ever noticed that whenever you read about Canadian history back then, around the 1920s and a bit earlier, Mm -hmm. it's always about trains? Well, yeah, it's like from the uh, mid-1800s on, it's like Canadian history is, forget everything else, let's talk about trains. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting uh, and how sort of unimportant trains have become in Canada over the years, how we don't travel by train like we used to and uh, that kind of thing. I was talking to two German tourists mm-hmm. on the ferry a number of months ago, and they said, yeah, we, we thought we'd take the tr- train. And I'm like, yeah, no. And yeah. They're, like, yeah, we, they're like, we quick, we quickly learn. Yeah, I can't do German accent. We quickly learned that train isn't the way to go in Canada. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I wish it was because I like traveling by train. I traveled by train when I was in the UK. I loved it. We need a hyper train from coast to coast. Either that or at least one down to like, San Francisco. Well, that's going to happen soon, apparently. But anyway, Leo grew up in a family where his father was often away for long weeks working on the construction of those railways. Over the years, the young boy was joined by a dozen brothers and sisters. Oh, my goodness. One can imagine the difficulties encountered by his mother raising these 13 children in an environment where the Great Depression had depreciated the standard of living. Daily life then became a constant struggle. Leo's father was violent when he came home, and his mother was overwhelmed with caring for her large family, so leaving home was a positive change in Leo's life trajectory. It was at 14 years old that Leo decided to leave the family home and live with his aunt, also a resident of Montreal. Shortly thereafter, he began a life of labor, working for a couple of farmers. Over the next few years, scrappy Leo Major did what was required to get by in working-class Montreal. In a Canadian economy slowly recovering from the devastating effects of the severe depression of 19... Leo was hired as a construction worker at the Central Station, which was erected on the old station site near downtown. It was a very tough job, requiring heavy lifting, dangerous objects, and enduring 9-10 to hour work shifts daily, 6 days a week. 
Not sparing any effort, Leo would earn the admiration of his foreman, who quickly noticed the young man's penchant for difficult and dangerous missions. He thus inherited the perilous task of blasting holes in the rock to consolidate the piles that were to support the walls and floors of the building. So Leo was kind of born for this. You know, Leo, our, our friend Leo, may have had a genetic predisposition for the, his attraction to danger. Yeah. Did you know that some people's thrill-seeking tendencies are can actually be linked to genetics? Really? I guess there's this uh, study called, it's quite renowned called the the Minnesota Twin Study. It began in the it began in the 70s, and I think it's still going on now. Yeah, they're the first to figure this out, and they discovered that identical twins who share all the same genes are more likely to exhibit similar levels of thrill-seeking behavior compared to fraternal twins that only share about half the genes, huh. which which suggests that actually thrill-seeking or like attraction to danger has a genetic component. And um, they they eventually, other scientists started looking into it, and they think that it's, they think that it's essentially an overactive dopamine D4 receptor oh. gene. Okay. Yeah. So if you think about it, right, if you have an overactive like receptor for dopamine, right, it's like the, you want more dopamine. You might be a psychopath as well. Or you might be Leo and yeah. a hero. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. As war broke out in Europe and Canada was drawn into the conflict as part of the British Commonwealth, at 19, Leo enlisted in the Canadian Armed Forces, hoping to make his father proud. He joined the storied Regiment de la Chaudière which had been reactivated on the 1st of September 1939, the day Germany invaded Poland. The regiment's badge is two cross silver machine guns, muzzles pointed upward, topped by a beaver. On top of that is a golden fleur-de-lis. A scroll at the bottom is inscribed air perennius between the two silver maple leaves. The maple leaves and the beaver represent service to Canada. The fleur-de-lis is an emblem of the province of Quebec. The Vickers guns are of the type used by the regiment when it was reclassified as machine gun regiment in 1936. Air perennius, more lasting than bronze, is the regiment's motto. What would air perennium mean? Then? <laughs> I don't... <laughs> you and your perennium. Always with, always with the taint. I've sat in a locked room with you. Mm. I think you need to air your perennium every once in a while. I definitely do. <laughs> the regiment's marching song is Sombra et Muse, uh, The Longest Day. Uh, before World War II, the regiment was given the honorary distinction Defense of Canada for its service during the War of 1812, and still active more recently from 2002 to 2014, Le Regiment de la Chaudière reinforced the CAF units deployed to Afghanistan. So the first year of Leo Major's military life took place in New Brunswick, where he began training with others from his regiment. Leo's regiment boarded the Strathmore Liner in the port of Halifax in late 1940. After encountering icebergs and extremely cold, windy weather, they arrived in the port of Glasgow on the River Clyde in early 1941. His training began right away. Upon arriving in the United Kingdom, the young Canadians experienced a culture shock as the language, customs, and traditions were very different from what they were used to at home. Yeah, they landed in Glasgow. That'd be a culture shock even for the rest of us Brits. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, I I think you know with the Glaswegian accent and deep fried Mars bars, he would have been had a little bit of a culture shock. Well, I was listening to or watching a video on Facebook where somebody was asking Glaswegians to say certain sentences, and it was like, oh my goodness gracious, they did not sound like they were speaking English at all. <laughs> It was, I couldn't make it out. There was a guy who I used to know who uh, was a mutual friend with some other friends. And and every time the guy spoke, uh, it was just like, what on earth is he talking about? What? A- and he would go on. And, and people would just sit there like blank faced. <laughs> it's such an amazing accent. It really is. My, my grandmother was from Glasgow, so. Uh, my, gran- my grandfather was from Ayr. No, there you go. Yeah, we're probably related. No, I sounded like I sounded like the maid in uh, uh, what cartoon is that? No, no, I don't know. No, the Canadian military's time in England during World War II was a crucial phase as soldiers underwent rigorous and comprehensive training to prepare for the monumental invasion of Normandy, a campaign that would prove pivotal to Allied victory. Amidst the rolling hills and varied terrain of the British countryside, Canadian troops engaged in extensive exercises designed to simulate the challenging conditions they would face on the beaches of Normandy and the battlefields of Western Europe. Training lasted from dawn till dusk, six days a week, 50 weeks a year, for over three and a half years. They became physically and mentally sharp and resilient as the war continued at sea, in the air, and in the African desert, gradually gaining ground superiority while the list of casualties lengthened daily. The training regimen was diverse and intense, covering a broad spectrum of military skills and tactics. Soldiers were drilled in amphibious assault techniques, learning to navigate the treacherous waters and storm the beaches under simulated enemy fire. Live fire exercises were a routine part of the training, providing troops with realistic combat experience and helping to hone their marksmanship and battlefield awareness. Coordination with other Allied forces was a critical component of the preparation, as the success of the Normandy invasion depended on seamless collaboration between units from different countries. Canadian soldiers practiced joint operations with British and American forces synchronizing their movements and strategies to ensure a united front against the enemy. Navigating the heavily fortified terrain of the French coastline was a major focus of the training. Soldiers were taught to identify, avoid, and disarm German mines and other explosive devices. They learned to use their surroundings to their advantage, utilizing the natural cover for protection and mastering the art of camouflage. Physical fitness was a top priority as the demands of the invasion and subsequent combat operations would be immense. The soldiers underwent rigorous physical training to build their strength, endurance, and agility. They were pushed to their limits, but the grueling preparation was designed to ensure that they were battle-ready and capable of withstanding the stresses of war. You know, I've been trying to exercise, and at this point, I think this is what it's going to take to get me into shape. <laughs> so so someone yelling at you, live fire, yeah. and all this kind of thing. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to lose weight unless there's live fire at this point, Mike. <laughs> well, there's no, there's no wonder that there was success when Normandy happened, when D-Day happened, because if you think about it, they were training for three and a half years. Some of these guys... The initial ones sent over were training for that entire time. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. The training also forged strong bonds of camaraderie and brotherhood among the soldiers. 
Living and training together in close quarters, they developed a deep sense of unity and mutual trust. This esprit de corps would be crucial in the heat of battle as soldiers relied on one another to face the challenges and dangers of combat. Canadian military leadership was acutely aware of the immense responsibility on their shoulders, and they worked diligently to prepare their troops for the trials ahead. They instilled in the soldiers a sense of duty and purpose, emphasizing the importance of their mission and the role they would play in liberating Europe from Nazi occupation. As the days ticked down to D-Day, the training intensity increased. The soldiers were pushed to their physical and mental limits, but the rigorous preparation ensured they were ready for the monumental task ahead. When the time came to embark on the invasion of Normandy, the Canadian forces were well-prepared, resilient, and united, ready to play their part in the historic assault that would turn the tide of World War II. This period of intense training in England was more than just military exercise. It was a crucible that forged the Canadian soldiers into a formidable fighting force, ready to face battle challenges and contribute to the Allied victory in Europe. While most of the Regiment de la Chaudière recruits could hardly speak English, Leo was one of the lucky few who could. He was quickly absorbed into the training units on the base. There, Leo specialized in the art of sniping, reconnaissance, and commando operations. However, in his free time, he chose boxing as a hobby, under the guidance of an excellent instructor. Since all three specialized courses were a strict regiment of theory and practical work, Leo did not have time to drink or chase women, as most of his fellow comrades did. During his training, Leo befriended Willie Arsenault, a French-Canadian from Montreal, who was also trained in the same league as Leo. Eventually, the two men became inseparable and later fought side by side on the bloody battlefields of Europe. As May 1944 came to a close, the Allies had gathered a massive fleet and an extensive number of troops poised to invade Nazi-occupied France in an operation dubbed Operation Overlord. In mid-May 1944, Leo's regiment was getting ready to become operational for transfer to the south coast of England, where more than 200,000 men from the Allied troops were gathering in preparation for the largest military amphibious operation the world had ever known. Two weeks before June 6, 1944, the troops were placed in isolation, all leaves were cancelled, letters to loved ones were heavily censored, and telephones were disconnected. Brochures for soldiers were posted in barracks with slogans such as, While you sip, let nothing slip, and other similar phrases. This formidable invasion force comprised two British and two American divisions, along with a 3rd Canadian Division and 2nd Armoured Brigade under the leadership of Major General R.F.L. Keller. British General Bernard Montgomery commanded all five divisions. The plan was to land at five distinct beaches along Normandy's northern French coastline, with the American forces assigned to Utah and Omaha, the British to Golden Sword, and the Canadian forces targeting Juneau Beach. On the morning of June 6, 1944, at 8.05, the 3rd Canadian Division boldly made their way ashore, the Regina Rifles being the first to set foot on Juneau Beach. To their west, the 3rd Division landed at Sword Beach. To their east, the 50th British Division took Gold Beach. The 3rd Canadian Infantry Division and the 3rd British Division almost instantly repelled a counteroffensive from the German 21st Panzer Division. Despite this, the Canadians managed to press on, advancing inland and eventually joining forces with the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion. 
Years later, Leo remembered his memories of the D-Day with his daughter Jocelyn. He told her, quote, What I remember most about that day is that the sea was wild as hell, and the landing craft was being tossed around by the waves. The deck was slippery with vomit. I remember Larry Casey. He was as green as a leaf from vomiting and was in a foul mood. He was scared and told me, We're all going to die, Leo. We're going to step on a damn mine. Besides, the other regiments are landing with tanks and we have a bulldozer. We're going to get slaughtered. I replied, Relax, Larry. You've got a good machine gun and you're going to be okay. We have a bulldozer while others just have tanks. Wait and see what we can do with it. I told him, all this with a smile to give him confidence, and it worked. End quote. Leo Major proved himself on day one of the invasion, battling his way into the town with his group capturing a German machine gun nest that morning. Leo had to step in front of a submachine gun of a sergeant from another unit who wanted to murder the surrendered Germans after their capture. Later that afternoon, Leo and another scout were on a reconnaissance mission when they spotted a German half-track and its crew members. The armored vehicle was equipped with a high-velocity 7.5-centimeter gun. Leo and his partner were walking on the side, hidden by a hedge off the road, when they saw the vehicle approach the woods from a rise in the road. The crew was smoking and chatting nonchalantly. Leo and the other scout got into position. When the vehicle was within range, Leo shot the driver, wounding him in the shoulder. The two men took advantage of this to escape hiding and aimed at the Germans. One of the Germans tried to reach for his weapon, but Leo was quicker and the man was also hit in the shoulder. At that point, the Germans admitted defeat. Leo and his companion took possession of the vehicle, in which Leo discovered a radio and German codes. He forced the driver to drive the vehicle toward the Canadian positions, where they were received by anti-tank gun fire from the Anglo-Canadian troops. Leo had to climb on top of the vehicle to make himself seen by the Allied soldiers. He later mentioned he was glad the Anglo-Canadian soldiers were terrible shots. Once in front of the Allied positions, an officer asked Leo to hand over the vehicle, which Leo immediately refused. He replied to the English officer, A Quebecer captured this vehicle, so it's going to the Quebec troops. You know, I don't think that's very good. Imagine if every soldier during a war made the decision on what they're going to do or listen to based on which province they're from. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm not going to give you this tank. I'm going to take it to the Ontario troops, right? Like, that. That. that's not really um, good soldiering. Well, I don't know. It, it, it was... I've read a lot of stories like this, and, and I think there was, I don't know, a healthy competition between units and that kind of thing, and... Um, they wanted, you know, I guess they wanted their share of the glory and maybe this was their way of making more fun. <laughs> I don't know, by having a little competition between them. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it was very, very common, that kind of thing. The officers of the Chaudier Regiment were very happy with the gift that Leo and his companion had given them. When Leo's daughter asked him if he'd been scared, as it was the first time he'd been exposed to a real combat situation, he replied, no, it never crossed my mind. I was too busy shooting at the Germans. By the end of the day, the 3rd Canadian Division had made the deepest penetration into Normandy. And we'll be back with more right after this break. But first, here's the promo for Supernatural Circumstances. Hey, Dark Poutine listeners, Mike here. Are you ready to dive deep into the mysteries of the supernatural? Join me. 
and award-winning paranormal researcher Morgan Knudsen as we dissect chilling phenomena on supernatural circumstances. From spine-tingling hauntings to creepy cryptids and other paranormal subjects, we'll be your guides on this extraordinary journey. We're in Season 2 right now, so there are plenty of episodes for you to catch up on. Buckle up and explore the unknown with us and numerous expert guests. Download Supernatural Circumstances wherever you podcast. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts so far? You know, I've, I'm wondering why I've never heard of Leo before. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's so often in popular culture, we get american stories via hollywood Mm -hmm. but for the canadian stories we you kind of have to seem seems to me anyway for me i have to sort of find them or uncover them right yeah you gotta dig for them yeah and in canada of course with its connection to the uk with part of the commonwealth had entered both world war one and two much sooner than the usa Mm -hmm. And, and i'm sure there's a lot of heroic stories to be told and and I think maybe maybe it's just because a we don't have like the Hollywood machine and and b I think Canada also tends to be a little slightly less jingoistic about war and culture and media. Yeah. Um. And and it could be because this guy's French. Yep, I think so too. I think that right? his heritage played a big part because from what I read in Quebec, he's well known, of course. Right. He's also obviously well known in Holland, where that we'll get into in a bit, but. Uh, it's really fascinating how somebody who did so many great things, essentially you never hear about them. Sure, they made a you know a stamp for them and all that kind of stuff, but Canadians, I don't know, we don't tend to beat our chests about things like this, maybe. We made the Canada arm. Yeah, right. 
<laughs> Two days after D-Day, Leo and four other Canadians were ordered to undertake reconnaissance mission toward the enemy lines near the city of Caen, where they encountered a German patrol consisting of five elite Hitlerjugend soldiers. In a life-or-death moment, Leo and his comrades fired first, killing all of them. However, one of the soldiers, mortally wounded, managed to throw a phosphorus grenade near Leo. It exploded, covering his face with mud and debris, and also burning part of his face, and partially blinding his left eye. Leo went to a mobile field hospital for treatment. The medic told him he had to be sent back to England, but Leo, feeling the action was starting, insisted on staying, convincing the medic that his right eye, which he used for aiming, was perfect. He returned to his unit with a bandage that he said made him look like a pirate, and he'd wear an eye patch for the next year. You know, it, it's incredible. He was like, hey, don't worry about it. It wasn't my good eye anyway. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I think a lot of people, and probably me, um, hmm. actually, I don't know, would jump at the chance of, of getting out of the war and going back home. Well, I, I think, you know, because of there was a lot of pride around being able to fight for your country at the time, and they were aware, sort of, what they were fighting for and against. That's true. So. That's true. If, if I was fighting the Nazis, I'd probably be gung-ho, but I, I wouldn't be willing to lay my my life on the line for for oil companies or right? a bunch of care bears or something i don't know yeah yeah bunch of care bears where, where does that come i from? don't know <laughs> you just made that uh, crap up i did <laughs> amid intensifying battles across northern france france and belgium in late 1944 the allies progressed unstoppably marking their first entry into the netherlands meanwhile Marshal Montgomery launched the ambitious Market Garden operation to seize key bridges, which faced immediate issues and ended in a failed retreat, though it did liberate significant regions. Almost concurrently, the Battle of the Scheldt in southwest Holland became imperative to alleviate the stretched supply lines and secure the Antwerp port for further Allied attacks. Despite the German army's heavy fortifications in the Dutch Delta, the Canadian Army bravely fought to control the estuary starting on October 1st, 1944. Codenames for military operations always fascinate me um, because they, they often use like really random or arbitrary words mm -hmm. um, that don't have any direct commission uh, connection to the mission right. in order to for security, right? Sure. And making it, making it harder for the enemy to figure out what you're talking about. So Market Garden... Um, you know, it's nonsensical in some ways, but market referred to the airborne component of the operation, oh. which which used paratroopers, um, and then and garden was the code name for the ground forces for this operation. Sure. Uh, so so instead of you know, probably not good to like name something uh, uh, air. And Air. ground invasion of the bridges, right? We'd right. probably give, give it away to the Germans, so it's Operation Market Garden. Yeah. In this battle, Leo played a crucial role. His commander, concerned about 50 soldiers sent on patrol without returning, tasked Leo with going to check on them. Leo, solo, and wearing his PT sneakers for stealth, navigated the night and the remains of a destroyed bridge arriving in a village at 6.30 a.m., he discovered a stack of rifles and a scattering of soldiers' gear near a house. A silent search of the building's lower level revealed nothing, 
but from an upper floor window, Leo scanned the surroundings at dawn, finding no trace of the other soldiers. Observing trenches by a canal and German soldiers who appeared to be asleep, along with two sentinels on the embankment, Leo formulated a daring plan for retribution, fueled by his discomfort from being soaked and frozen. So he was a little pissed off. Mm. This seems to be a theme with Leo. Stealthily, Leo captured the first and second sentries, using the first as bait, and commanded them to lead him to their officer. Disarming the stunned officer, Leo demanded the German wake his men and come with him, quickly dispatching one who resisted. Despite being fired upon by SS troops, he maintained control, directing a Sherman tank to engage the enemy, and continuing to his command post with over 93 prisoners. This is all, I'm listening to you, and you can picture the movie in your head. It's all so cinematic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and I also think it's funny, like, the, the PT sneakers he was in. Yeah. Um, those, they, they look like, um, like Vans high tops. Yep, kind of, yeah. So I'm I'm picturing him running around in you know you know those checkerboard vans high tops you can get. I'm I'm picturing him running around in a pair of vans. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty crazy. Uh, uh other sneakers available. Yeah. And uh, you said it's cinematic but uh from what I've read and what I know about Leo and all that kind of stuff, if you made this into a movie, people would think what a load of nonsense. Yeah, it's like Inglorious Bastards, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except it really happened. <laughs> After another fierce battle with the Germans weeks later, the Canadians, including Leo and the regiment chaplain, navigated the strewn battlefield in a Bren carrier. They encountered a scene of devastation, including a destroyed tiger tank and several fallen soldiers. Eager to assist, Leo helped load the bodies into the carrier, using a cigarette to mask the smell of burnt flesh. However, an explosion soon hit, injuring Leo and necessitating a painful journey to a field hospital. Leo had sustained fractures in three vertebrae, several ribs, and both of his ankles. The doctors told him, your war is over, young man, you're headed home. Yet they had once again underestimated Leo. He was not ready to give up. He was nominated for a Distinguished Conduct Medal at that time, but declined the decoration. Restless in the hospital, he decided he wanted to visit his girlfriend, Antoinette, in a nearby Dutch village. Despite his injuries, he snuck out of the hospital and made the journey. Surprising Antoinette's mother with his presence, he was welcome to stay. After a month and a half of recovery at Antoinette's, Leo was physically well enough to return to his regiment. He cut off his plaster cast and rejoined the fighting in the dense forests of the Rhineland. The 3rd Canadian Division, which Leo's unit was a part of, along the Aegisil River's eastern shore. They pushed forward toward the north, freeing numerous villages, boroughs, and towns in the process. A significant moment occurred on April 8th in the town of Zutphen, where Leo made a name for himself by infiltrating the town, taking out SS snipers, and injuring German officers as the rest of the troops prepared for the offensive. Everywhere the Canadian forces went, they were greeted by large groups of civilians lining roadsides eager to express their joy and gratitude. The celebratory atmosphere was heightened by the vibrant display of flags and orange banners, all proudly proclaiming a heartfelt thank you, Canada. Advancing further into Holland, the 3rd Division aimed to seize the vital city of Zwolle. Aware of the civilian population in the town, not wanting to destroy them with artillery, 
Leo's commander sought volunteers for a risky reconnaissance mission into the city, which Leo and his close friend Willie Arsenault promptly accepted. The duo spent the afternoon preparing, opting to use the cover of night for their operation and arm themselves heavily. After some relaxation, preparation, and encouragement from their peers, they were ready to embark on their mission. At around 11 p.m. on April 13, 1945, Leo and Willie began their perilous mission, cautiously approaching the viaduct. Leo led while Willie followed behind. Suddenly, a burst of machine gun fire rang out, followed by Willie's scream. Leo retaliated, killing two Germans and setting the rest fleeing, only to find Willie dead, a discovery that filled him with rage. Resolved to continue alone to prevent Zwall's bombing and to save civilians, Leo took Willie's gear and pressed on, alert and determined. Upon reaching the railway yard and locating the hotel and a German vehicle, Leo ambushed and disarmed the German driver, then confronted and disarmed a German officer inside the hotel. He warned the officer of an impending bombing if the Germans didn't evacuate by 6 a.m. Understanding the dire situation, the officer left. Intent on not letting the SS and Gestapo escape, Leo regrouped in an abandoned house and plotted his next steps. He found the SS headquarters on his map and stealthily entered, discovering eight SS soldiers inside. Four were instantly killed while the others fled when Leo attacked the building and then set it on fire. He then disrupted enemy patrols throughout the city with various firearms and explosives, directing injured men to the Chaudière troops before continuing his mission. Around 3 a.m., he reached the Gestapo headquarters, eliminated the soldiers, and set that building on fire. He moved so quickly, caused so much havoc, and made so much noise that the Germans believed a large Canadian force was in the city. By 4.30 a.m., exhausted, Leo encountered four resistance members and, despite a language barrier, managed to communicate with them through a schoolteacher, declaring Zwald liberated and arranging for a vehicle to return to his unit and prevent the city's bombing. Upon returning, he retrieved Willie's body and conveyed the mission's success. Later, he joined a celebratory crowd in Zwall, reflecting on the city's newfound freedom. Leo had single-handedly liberated an entire town of 50,000 people. Leo, recognized by his eye patch, was celebrated by locals and taken to meet the mayor in a royal-like procession. Simultaneously, he was invited to a week's holiday with a local family. Despite his haunting memories, Leo joined the city's liberation celebrations. Leo Major was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal for Liberating Zwoll. His citation reads in part, quote, The gallant conduct of this soldier, his personal initiative, his dauntless courage, and entire disregard for personal safety was an inspiration to all. His gallant action was instrumental in enabling the mopping up on April 14th to be done without a shot being fired, end quote. After returning home to Canada in August 1945, Leo found no celebrations awaiting him and faced a cold reception at his parents' house, learning that they had sold his clothes, expecting him not to return. He pursued work as an apprentice plumber, quickly establishing financial independence. Well, that's not a very nice welcome home. No. Hey, Leo, we figured you'd, you'd be dead, so he sold all your stuff. Yeah, exactly. See you later, yeah. Leo. <laughs> you know, my, my husband's mom sold all of his Star Wars action figures when he was in university without telling him. Oh, no. 
And he swears we'd be millionaires today if he still had them. <laughs> my mom did those similar things. She she sold my bike when I was away at one point and lay, <laughs> lay, our, our pool table that we had in the basement. All the things that I loved were gone when I came home. It was crazy. She sold my, my Star Wars figures uh, at yard sales. My Atari 2600 with, like, so many games that would be worth so much today, gone. Gone, gone, everything gone. You know, my my mom was actually good at this when she's clearing out the basement after my dad died and she's moving. She, uh, I'd get, I guess I had a whole bunch of vinyl, and, and she she asked if I wanted her or what she should do. So mm. I, um, I ended up just letting people know on Facebook, and a lot of old friends um, went and Got the old albums. Wow, that's kind of cool. In 1951, a fellow veteran introduced Leo to his sister Pauline. Leo remained modest about his achievements, and when questioned about his distinguished conduct medal, he downplayed it, preserving his humble, reserved nature. The two were married. In the late spring of 1951, Leo Major was back in action in Korea, Recognized for his abilities and placed in the Scout and Sniper Platoon, a group of tough, endurance-driven individualists. While truce talks with the communists dragged on without resolution, ground forces sought advantageous positions. In mid-November, Major's unit was tasked with holding a strategic position which was directly in the path of a determined Chinese assault aiming to seize terrain before a potential truce. As they settled in, the Chinese launched a massive artillery attack on November 22nd, intensifying their efforts the next day. Despite being practically surrounded, D Company held their ground even after losing Hill 355 and facing attacks from all directions. Lieutenant Colonel Dextrays, refusing to give up any ground, deployed an assault group led by Leo Major to counterattack. Major's group, armed and stealthy, reclaimed their objective but faced a Chinese counterattack. Major resisted orders to fully withdraw, instead directing fire from a slightly retreated position, enduring these intense conditions and close-range mortar fire to hold off the attackers. Major's audacious leadership and Dextrays' unwavering stance epitomized the resilience and grit of Leo's unit during this critical confrontation in Korea. Leo Major was again rewarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal for the second time in his life. His citation described his actions in part. Quote, so expertly did he direct the fire of supporting mortars and artillery that the platoon was able to repulse four separate enemy attacks, running from one point of danger to another under heavy small arms fire from his flank, he directed the fire of his men, encouraging them to hold firm against overwhelming odds. By dawn, Major's force had withdrawn 200 yards to the east, reporting that nothing is left there to occupy, not a bunker or a slit trench. The citation concluded, quote, Against a force superior in number, Corporal Major simply refused to give ground. His personal courage and leadership were beyond praise, filling an appointment far above his rank. He received the full confidence of his men, so inspired were they by his personal bravery, his coolness, and leadership. End quote. 
Thanks to the bravery of soldiers like Leo and many others, Canadian soldiers gained an outstanding reputation for their exceptional bravery, skill, and professionalism during World Wars II and the Korean War. In World War II, they were pivotal in major campaigns, notably Normandy, capturing Juno Beach with remarkable valor. Their ability to endure harsh conditions was evident in both the Italian campaign and the liberation of the Netherlands, showcasing their resilience and efficiency in military operations. Local populations in stationed areas generally held Canadian troops in high regard, noting their discipline and respectful demeanor. During the Korean War, Canadian forces as part of the United Nations Coalition displayed remarkable tenacity, especially in critical battles like the Battle of Kapyong. This period underscored Canada's commitment to international peacekeeping, contributing significantly to global security initiatives. In both conflicts, the professionalism and ability of Canadian soldiers to perform admirably under challenging conditions bolstered Canada's image as a dependable and proficient military ally in international efforts, a legacy that continues to shape perceptions of the Canadian Armed Forces to this day. Leo was made an honorary citizen of Zwolle on April 14, 2005, the 60-year anniversary of his liberation of that town. A Zwolle street was renamed in Leo's honour. Leo Majorlan, or Leo Major Lane. After being married to Pauline and living out his life as a proud father and grandfather, Leo Major passed away on October 12, 2008. He was 87. In May 2020, Canada Post released two stamps to mark the 75th anniversary of VE Day, Victory in Europe. One highlighted Private Leo Major, while the other featured Veronica Foster. You know, I was thinking, I, I saw this stamp when you sent me the script, and I was thinking about getting getting it for you for Christmas. Oh, that's nice, yeah. <laughs> you know, a Ver do you know much about Veronica Foster, Mike? I read a bit about her, and I didn't add it to the script because I knew you would want to talk about yeah, her. Yeah, she was cool. So she's known as Ronnie, the Bren Gun Girl. yeah. And and she was uh, she's kind of like uh, and I I hate doing comparisons to American stuff all the time all the time but she's like Rosie the Riveter exactly she's the Canadian Rosie the Riveter essentially but uh, she actually became famous for her role in uh, promoting the sale of victory bonds mm -hmm. in Canada yep um, she worked at the Inglis Munitions Plant in Toronto. Um, and she was often photographed in her factory uniform holding a machine gun. Yeah, so good for her. In, instead of holding a wrench, like the Canadian gals holding the machine gun, right? Mm -hmm. And um, she actually became a symbol of Canadian women's contribution to the war effort on the home front. And um, yeah, I, I actually want to get some of these stamps. They're really cool. Yeah, I, I don't collect stamps. I've known people who collected stamps, but there's a lot of history you can learn about a stamp like you you would see this leo major stamp and think well here's a guy wearing an eye patch let's look into what this guy was all about he's like holding up a tulip and wearing an eye patch and you think oh well he looks like a very nice person i'm sure he he was a very you know easygoing guy and didn't do anything special in the war well he did a lot <laughs> he took an entire town all by himself so i I have a book of uh, Leonard Cohen stamps in front of me right here. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 292, Remembrance Day 2023, The One-Eyed Ghost, Leo Major. Thank you for um, this episode, Mike. I was, I was, it, it was fun learning about this guy. Yeah.
That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one 877 darkptn We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Well, let's see who called us this week. We know already because we've done this three times. <laughs> I, I, I think this is the fourth. Mike forgot to push the little red button that said record. I forgot to push the little red button. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, let's go ahead with this one, which is our very coolest voicemail. Happy birthday, Doug Poutine. Go shit in your hat. Love from Catherine Rowan Jones. Hi, Wickham, England. Hi, Wickham, England. I did not get there when I was traveling. Uh, where is that, Matthew, in relation to I th- London? I think it's near Reading. Okay. All yeah. right. I don't. I think it's not far from Reading. I've been there. I can remember liking it. It's a nice little town. I like the fancy hyphenated names that always sort of seem to happen in the UK. My husband has one. Yes, which means you have one as well. Well, actually, in the UK, I, I changed my name to to add his to mine. And so I, I'm officially a triple barrel last name in the UK. Stockton Levitt Yates is my last name in the UK. Stockton Ye- Levitt Yates. Wow, that's fancy. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, so, and we have already... Uh, determined what Catherine is three times now, so let's do it again. What what does she do for a living, Matthew? Uh, she's definitely a professor. A professor of history. Yes, exactly. Because yeah. but she she does like cool alternative history. Alternative history? Like alternative facts? No, like like more alt like the cool shit. Right? So she'll she she does history that like she doesn't focus on on you know the the wars and everything else she goes deep into the history of the uk through things like um the sex pistols and oh that's fun you know malcolm mclaren and and the the designers and and uh sort of the 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 off offbeat authors and stuff like that so so she i saw malcolm mclaren's grave when i was in highgate oh yeah yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, Catherine, for your wishes. Let's move on to our next voicemail. Hey, Mike and Matt. My name is Travis, and I live in, well, I live near Hamilton, Ontario. I'm a truck driver, and I just want to con- congratulate you guys on your six-year anniversary of Dark Poutine. Um, like I said, I'm a truck driver, so I spend a lot of time alone listening to podcasts and uh you guys are my tuesday podcast i look forward to every tuesday when i get to listen to you guys um another cool really cool thing is living in southern ontario it's nice to uh hear so many stories of what's actually happened around here you kind of hear the lore but it's kind of nice to hear your take on things and another cool thing about you guys too is as someone who typically leans towards the right it's interesting to hear your podcast um, and hear your opinions from the left side, but it's done in a way that isn't intrusive. It's done in a way that actually makes you think, and maybe maybe there is a better way to be more open-minded about certain things. Um, but anyway, I just want to congratulate you guys on the six-year anniversary. I listen to you guys every week and love the podcast. And as always, go take a shit in your hat. Have a good night. Bye. 
Thanks, Travis. Thank you. Much appreciated. Thanks, Travis. So whenever people go, I'm from Hamilton, uh, just near Hamilton, I bet you he's from Dundas. Dundas, Ontario. Dundas, Ontario. And it's. I think it's also funny that he just called me lefty, which you, you know I'm not. Um, no, and uh, I don't think I am fully either, <laughs> no, <laughs> which but, is but, kind but, of interesting. But I get it. I think like people like Travis, I think, um, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but actually the guy sounds like he understands it. it's it, it's less linear, right? It's not like yeah. right, left. It's like a multidimensional thing. Like for me even, you know me, Mike, like I'm socially like just socially left like let people do or be who they want to be but fiscally and sort of government wise very right sort of like small yeah because you don't like paying taxes small government you know all that <laughs> well no not at all uh even yeah. even though i do in case the the cra is listening to me i pay it yeah we both um, do yeah um but um yeah no so and and i think that's that's great somebody sort of who identifies more 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 right leaning but but uh and I, and I love that people can have these sorts of like this way more grown up than you know we get you know you get mike you get sometimes we get hate mail and, and somebody like you know fir, firmly i get some really crappy hate mail and, firmly, and people are just like really right like firmly putting dumb. firmly putting their feet on the ground of something mm. because they're parroting they're parroting all the crap that they hear in the media for somebody like Travis is going hey yeah i'm more right 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 leaning but you know perspective and listening and learning shit and you know now he's not he, this this is a guy who's not afraid of 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 like being forced to become a lefty he's just like an open minded dude by the sound of it to me right it was actually through doing this show that i became more open-minded i was i was a little kind of stuck on some weird ideas for a long time and and doing the show kind of helped open my eyes a bit so yeah. you know it is what it is yeah uh let's move on okay amazing i want to say i heard your last podcast on the Sam Squanch, as you say in Trailer Park Boys or Sasquatch in your uh, in your podcast. Uh, my name is Tim. I am from Newfoundland originally. I messaged uh, Matthew one time because I'm the original Inuit Newfie Jew. And uh, I wanted to say I love your podcast. I've been listening for a couple of years. I have your number programmed in my phone and I called a couple of times and hung up. What am I going to say? But it's your anniversary, so happy anniversary. I love your show. I listen to it from the beginning to the end. Look forward to when it comes on again. Uh, I am not going to tell you what I do. Uh, Matthew can guess what I do, and that would be a privilege. But other than that, I want to tell you that your show is fantastic. It brings a lot of joy to so many people. You need to understand how much... Uh, joy and happiness it brings to the people who listen to it and that uh, all over the continent. And thank you for for doing this. And I, I appreciate it very, very much. Your your care, your, your mindfulness of situations and of some horrible crimes at times. And then fun stuff like, you know, this October, scary stuff is, is lighthearted. But your kindness that you show to victims and their families is very rare in, in this uh, true crime universe. Have a wonderful day and go take a big old giant shit in your hat. God bless. Take care. Come oh on. boy, he said that with gusto. 
<laughs> yes, he did. Yeah. Uh, people from the East Coast really have a way of uh, expressing themselves when it comes to cursing. It, like he mentioned Trailer Park Boys. If you want to learn how to curse in Nova Scotia and watch the Trailer Park Boys because it's so fun. <laughs> Anyway, uh, what do you think he does for a living? He says he wants you to guess. Well, he's an Inuit Nufi Jew, mm-hmm. right? So I think he he's an architect and he makes, and I'm going to use all the tropes here, he builds Jewish temples out of ice blocks. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. That's fun. It's sort of like, remember like the cool ice bars that they in the 90s, right? Sure. Yeah, he does, he does uh, ice shul. I st- I want to go to one of those ice hotels in like Iceland or Greenland or whatever. Yeah, it'd be fun. I, who, who did that first? I think it's absolute vodka or something. Like that. Yeah, okay. someone like that. Anyway, let's move on. Hi there, this is Hannah. Um, I am currently living in East Hants, but I am originally from Liverpool, not far from Bridgewater. So I love the stories that are from the South Shore. Um, happy anniversary and happy Halloween. Oh, and one more thing. Go take a shit in your hat. Well, there you go. Short and sweet. <laughs> what does Hannah do in East Hants, Nova Scotia? Well, she's from... So I didn't know we... First of all, I didn't know we had a Liverpool, Mike. Yes, we do. Yep. Yep. It's about 20 minutes down the road from Ridgewater. So I have lots of friends and memories of Liverpool growing up. So she uh, runs the um, Canadian Beatles fan club. Oh, well, that makes sense. <laughs> They're from Liverpool, aren't they? Liverpool, England, yes. Okay. My name is John, and I play the guitar. Now, now, now do that with a, with a Liverpool, uh, Canada accent. My name's John, and I play the, the guitar. <laughs> oh, boy. Love yeah. it. Yep. Down there. Anyway, uh, great stuff. So thank you very much, Hannah. And we've got one more. Hi, Mike and Matthew. This is Madison from Toronto. Wishing you both a happy anniversary and a very spooky and happy Halloween. I've been listening to the show every week since the beginning, and I just want to say thank you so much for sharing interesting and well-researched stories with empathy, intelligence, and humor each episode. I've been honored to create artwork for the show's merch, which to this day is still one of my proudest accomplishments. Thank you so, so much for that opportunity. And I also met Mike in person way back in the day at a podcast event in Toronto in 2018, uh, which was awesome. I'm looking forward to hearing slash seeing what happens next for the podcast this upcoming year. Congrats again and go shit in your hat, Madison. Thank you so much, Madison. Good to hear your voice again. Uh, yes, I remember Madison well, and, and you, you can still get her merch on the Dark Poutine Threadless store. It's uh, it's called the Madison uh, Edit, I think. I can't remember exactly, but uh, it's a illustration of a knife stabbing some poutine. It's really, really fun. So, uh, yeah, go have a look at our Threadless store. If you go to darkpoutine.com, you can get to the store pretty quickly. Madison Um, sounds like she's an OG listener. She is definitely an OG. Like she said, she listened from the beginning. And uh, and that um, podcast meetup was when I drove across Canada and I met all those different podcasters from different Canadian shows. And they brought me up on stage. And that was the day that I met... Uh, the person from Chorus, 
who helped us start to monetize our show. So uh, much appreciated. And I have very good memories of that show. It so sounds uh, like it's a bit like your coming out party. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. So anyway, thank you, Madison. And let's move on. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All righty, uh, we do have a patron this week, and it is Beck Bain. And she is from Matthew's Stomping Grounds, London, Ontario. Dun, da, da, da. And so what does Beck do there in London, Matthew? Beck Bain sounds like a great sort of stage name. Mm-hmm. So I think Beck Bain is is an actor. Is an actor? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Beck. I think Beck acts in the... Grand Theatre in London under the Perineum Arch. Under the Perineum Arch. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, thank you so much, Beck, and thank you to all our other patrons and Donut Money donors. Thanks, much Beck. appreciated. Yes. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. So that's it for our annual uh, Remembrance Day show. So, until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye, y'all. Goodbye. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.